Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Thriving Minds podcast. I'm Professor Selena Bartlett, and today I'm joined by Michael Morgan, all the way from Iowa in the US. And he's got such an interesting background. He actually earned degrees in physics and philosophy at UC Berkeley. And anyone that knows me knows that I also lived in Berkeley for a long time. And he also has uh, MA degrees in interdisciplinary studies. Um, and I'm going, and he's going to talk a lot about that today. So he's studied extensively across multiple fields, and he spent a long time at the Upledger Institute, which we he, we're going to talk a little bit about today, and that's been for the last 20 years. And his expertise and his gift is in the application of craniosacral therapy and in a variety of settings, including teaching doctors and many other. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um well, I, I was thinking as you invited me to the podcast to kind of explain briefly my life, and I can just say it's been an adventure <laughs> from one step to another. And there seems to have been a lot of coincidence, which has just led me, as I'm sure you've experienced too, from one step to another. Um, currently, I've uh, I'm, uh, been an instructor for the Upledger Institute. If any of you have heard about cranial sacral therapy, I can talk more about that in a bit for the last 20, 22 years, and even since the early 90s, been a practitioner. And um, before that, uh, I had an industrial automation company. I don't usually talk about this, but I invented a way to cut glass with a laser and then a water jet, uh, which was really interesting to look at technological advances in the 80s. Um, and I've been a, a teacher of meditation, transcendental meditation, for almost 50 years now. So uh, that's been a big part of my life in terms of developing what some of us say is an intuition for knowledge, using that right brain intuitive part, as well as the science. You know, there's the subjective aspect of gaining knowledge, and then there's the objective as well. And in terms of, you know, where I started at Berkeley, uh, it's funny, I was just thinking about this in my meditation. Um, I wrote a paper in my junior year and it was a really uh, very sharp political science professor I had at Berkeley. And he said, write a paper about some change in paradigm. And I did. And I think it was Brown versus Topeka Board of Education. It was about, you know, like how basically in the U.S., the way that we looked at a change in jurisprudence would change the way a, a lot of people live. But funnily enough, I realized that what I've been fascinated about my whole life is changes in paradigms, things that are small and sometimes large shifts that can change the way uh, we look at the world and hopefully for the better, right? So uh, I think I think in a way, one thing built on another and the science part has always been a part of what I've done. And then as someone said that did my Jyotish or astrology, they said, you know, you'll always have the science part, but there's always a little flavor of artistry that sneaks into it as well. So that's always kind of the way it's there. I've always seemed to work with artists and people that are a little more right brain and talented, and then I'll bring in the science part. Sometimes we'll switch roles. So that's a little bit how I've uh, developed things. And I just love to look at, as I think any scientist does, I know you're this way, Selena, it's like, you'll kind of look at what are the underlying principles at core, which govern the universe. And we, we dig into that and look and look and look. And at some point, sometimes we realize, oh, maybe this, this pattern of knowledge we have right now isn't sufficient, but we can take a leap to go to another level. And I think that's what I've done um, with my research in Alzheimer's dementia, you know, cranial sacral therapy, which is a real gentle manual hands-on technique that's taught all around the world. That's great for headaches and migraines. It's great for kid or moms that have had birth difficulties and their children and babies. Um, it's good for autism, which is where I really learned how to work with seniors with Alzheimer's, funnily enough. Um, but then another thing that just fell in my lap is because my uh, stepmother and sister-in-law died of Alzheimer's, I became interested in Alzheimer's and how this cranial sacral I did. Maybe there could be an application for that. And, you know, just like in your experience, sometimes you have a family member that's experienced something and that just draws you into, okay, what's up? What are the mechanics of this? What could I do that might possibly be of assistance? And 
I think that's how a lot of people get drawn into something like I did. I had no intention to ever look at Alzheimer's dementia and look at the mechanics of a disease process, except that personally, I had two family members that died of it. And that was my motivation so for a lot like, of what I'm doing now. How did you choose physics and philosophy then at Berkeley? Um, obviously, you've stepped into the world of healing and helping. Uh, and it doesn't mean that physics and philosophy don't help anyone. But how did you start in that way? And how is it helping you do your work now? Because I'm sure it will. Well, as any young man in the 60s, and, and I think young women too, I wanted to be an astronaut. I, I'm a pilot. You know, I haven't flown in a while, but I was always fascinated by aerospace and the cosmos. And I realized, well, probably at some point, I'm not going to be an astronaut physically, but physics and astrophysics, which is really my kind of hobby, um, is really what I got really fascinated into. And that just drove me into looking at, I was very good at physics and horrible at math, <laughs> but Einstein was that way as well. But I just love the physics part of like how the universe worked. And then philosophy was just kind of a follow-on as I met some challenges in school. And I thought, I dug a little deeper into, well, the essence of being, why we're here. And then I realized the two things correlated. And somewhere within that, uh, after college, I, I started on a path of learning about meditation, which also was seemingly coincidental, but a lot of people in my fraternity, these guys at Berkeley were into meditation, believe it or not. And no, that was kind that's of- That's what I was about to say. I bet that's where that started from. Yeah. I was like down the street from the TM Center in Berkeley and- um, you know, coincidentally, kind of across the street from it or down the street. And that's that's kind of what led me over a year or two to that as well, which was a, a foundational piece in my life, just understanding that there's an ability without drugs <laughs> to have some expansion and appreciation of how the universe works and a deepening of intuition. So I think that is a piece that's carried with me through decades. Um, do you that's probably honestly kept me alive, too. Yeah, so maybe we should talk a little bit about that. What was the, like, can you talk us through the moment? Because I know that people that are in physics, mathematics, and those parts tend to be quite didactic and mm -hmm. uh, and, and everything can be proven. So right. when you moved, what was the, how did you get to pulled into that area? I, obviously, it was through your friends, is my guess, in International House. And yeah. uh, that TM Center is very famous around the world. And the mm -hmm. 60s were very much that way anyway, I guess, yeah. in some sense. So what was the first thing that you noticed when you actually started to apply yourself to doing the practice? I think the first thing is being somewhat of a nervous person. <laughs> I felt relaxed. I felt profoundly relaxed. And then I started to notice over time because TM's cumulative over decades, it grows. And you know, you don't meditate for the meditation, although that's pleasant, but the results in activity. <clears throat> but I began to notice what we call in TM's support of nature, that things just not always fall in your lap, but things seem to work out better. And I noticed that my intuition progressively over time got deeper and that was a very valuable very practical thing things just and so do you want to just been... describe i love this word but people don't really know what intuition means necessarily what do you mean by that for someone that's like using your right brain all the time how do you describe right. what that intuitive thinking means to an audience it's... that may not understand well okay very good so yeah that that's not maybe an obvious thing intuition means that there's something that comes to you that you know in, in cranial sacral, we call it kind of our inner wisdom. It's like inside our body, we may know the body's trying to tell us something. We may ignore it, which many people, including myself, do. But we have a sense of, oh, yeah, there's something that can lead to the next step. You have kind of an aha moment and you realize that. And it's like even when you're meditating, even though you don't meditate for that, when you come out, you notice how things are connected in the universe a bit more, or you're just led to something without any reason that knows uh, what's going on. So from the science point of view, when you look at modern physics, 
from an objective point of view, modern physics is trying to go deeper and deeper and deeper into the aspect of knowing how matter and energy work to the point where when you look at electrons and quarks, for example, and subatomic particles, you're looking at the finer aspects of creation. And funnily enough, you know, a lot of physicists sound a little bit more mystic at a deeper level. They, they talk about quarks and they talk in terms of charm. And like, what does that have to do with objective, like charm, spin, and that kind of thing? But it's as if um, you're looking at even how the fabric of universe ties together in a way that doesn't seem to be objectively explainable, if that's the proper way to use the word. So we were just talking before we started tonight about this newest Nobel Prize in quantum entanglement. The idea that, for example, two photons can know each other, like they have a relationship, but when they part, they're still interconnected at a distance. Like, how is that so? Like one of the astronauts on Apollo, they did an experiment where he could think a thought and see if somebody could pick it up on Earth a quarter of a million miles away. Like, how is that possible? Did so they, I would say- that experiment guy, by the way? Uh, I think he found that some people could pick it up. They could register that. Um, forget the name of the astronaut at the moment. I think it's Edgar- I don't know if he's still with us or not. Like some of these astronauts are, you know, well into their nineties now from yeah. Apollo, but they were, they got very interested in that and their frame changed because being outside of earth and then coming back and looking at earth from a distance, their whole, their whole perspective and paradigm about how life on the entire planet was living. It was, it was completely changed. It yeah. was obviously life changing for them to do it. So I think in changing come back to the idea those... of science, Pardon me, go ahead. And also changing for us those images they sent back to us. Change. Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, now here's an example of coincidence. So I love going to Montana and I do therapeutic programs uh, there. And I was coming back through Bozeman, Montana, where I have some friends. And uh, a lady that I've known for years, her boyfriend is a sculpture. And he's a master of sculpturing in bronze. All right. So... He's got some very voluptuous and beautiful sculptures and cowboy, you know, that kind of thing. The regular cowgirl, cowboy kind of run-of-the-mill sculptures, but very nicely done, very brilliant. And he goes, he says, would you like to come upstairs? I'd like to show you on a little project I'm working on. I go, okay. So we go upstairs and there are three astronauts in real life uh, form and scale. The ones that orbited the moon in 1968. And he was able to uh, interview one of these astronauts, and they're all three alive. They're the only three astronauts of the three crews that are still alive. He's in his 90s, and this fellow befriended this fellow, and they went on camping trips together in, in Montana. And he found out things that I, I held in my hand an American flag that had circled the moon, you know, and I just got chills. And it's like, I've just always had this interest being a pilot and you know, astronautics, and there I meet this fellow who wanted to bring him to life. He's going to make a life-size sculpture of these uh, um, gentlemen and display it in a NASA facility. And that's, again, one of those things like who knew that somebody that did bronze sculpture that's fairly commercial but very good would be doing uh, a bust of three different people, life-size image of three astronauts. And that's just like, that happens in in... I think someone that meditates a lot, like there's a lot of what we call infinite correlation where things seem to mesh. And I kind of call it like an intuition for knowledge, like, and I'm sure you've experienced this as well. Like you might have the thought to do some research. And so you focus your attention on a particular area. And just by doing that and asking nature, which is an abstract way of just asking the universe for help, information starts to come to you. And as my spiritual uh, teacher, Maharishi, used to say, who was an expert in looking at the Veda, he says that knowledge at a deeper level of silence is a sequential unfolding of knowledge. And so that means you start with one thing and you get a certain piece of information, typically. Then the next little packet may come and the next little packet and things start to unfold. So it's like nature starts to bring to you the information that you need. And the beautiful thing about the scientific method is you can subjectively measure to a certain degree. You look at cause and effect. 
you look at cause and effect, and any scientist will tell you with your salt that they do that in a way very objectively, but inside of that, their intuition is always informing them. Even, you know, I've had scientists tell me they can look at a pattern of numbers and they'll know within that pattern of numbers after a while what's underneath it. Yes. Like in um, physics, when you talk about relativity, it's called the invariant uh, invariant principle or invariant interval. There's something underneath it. Well, Sorry. No, I agree. And, but also <laughs> what happens is that the way the brain's attention networks are tuned is once you put full attention on something, then I don't know if you noticed this, all of a sudden, just say you're going to buy a car. Yeah. And you then you set in motion, oh, I think we'll get this type of car. The next minute on the road, they're the only cars you start to see. Whereas exactly. you never have before. So that, right. that means that the it's what the, and so you start to think about this with science. Uh, just say you have a hypothesis about what you're going to be testing. Then all of a sudden, they're all the papers you start searching for. Right. Right. So there's a there's a, a a forward and a backward thing that's happening here from a brain's attention network. So mm -hmm. it, what it also does though on the detrimental side of this is that once you get this really narrow focus on something, that can go on for 20 or 30 years. There is and, that. And and because then <laughs> because of the nature of the scientific method you always only uh, only end up with more questions and then you end up in a pathway and, and I've seen this over and over again in my own scientific career. And this is something mm -hmm. that all of us have to be really worried about. This is where belief comes from and why it's multi-generational, mm -hmm. why we end up in a belief tunnel. I that, and again, maybe I can't scientifically validate it, but that, for example, if you're meditating and more in tune with the laws of nature, hopefully at that level, they're more life-supporting for the highest and best good. Like I was thinking about this tonight. I hadn't thought about this for years, but when I was uh, researching how to cut glass with a laser, we found we could cut the laser and vaporize it for a few millimeters, which was great because we could cut uh, glass like knife through butter. But then one of my investors in Seattle said, Mike, I'm holding a piece of glass made through a water jet that's centimeters thick, an order of several you know, a, a magnitude or more logarithmic more, more than we could do with the, with the laser. And in 24 hours, I had to set aside all the time and investment I put in the laser high energy technology and say, let's adapt it to the water jet. And I remember my mind like turning a page and going from Portland to Seattle on a plane, about a 40 minute ride and going like, I was meditating going like, oh, okay, we have to shift. And had I been, and I know you've had that experience too, like had I been so invested in one methodology, I wouldn't have had the flexibility to think of something that was actually better. That's another thing. Beneficial. That's a great yeah. uh, segue into what we now know about how meditation uh, changes the insular cortex to cause uh, an in increases mm -hmm. in cognitive flexibility. And it doesn't have to be just meditation, right? It can be also breathing. Right exercises right. there's a lot of ways to tap into this expansion and improve cognitive flexibility and I, I get this takes us down the aging pathway doesn't it because aging becomes yeah. a, a, a system of reductions in thinking in the sense that we keep end up in repeating things that we really feel safe in and not expanding and becoming more cognitively flexible by taking out novelty or thinking we can't do things because of our mm -hmm. age or being told at 60, you shouldn't be doing this or at 70, you can't be doing that. You should be looking right. at this time at home now because of this certain age. So that's another limiting set of beliefs that surrounds many people too. And that's a segue to one of the questions you're going to ask me just to show how life seems to have, have, have hazard, but maybe not. I'm working with this cranial psychotherapy and, and loving it and teaching it around the world. And then I started, as I mentioned on that pathway, looking at Alzheimer's dementia. So I've been doing that for about 10 to 15 years, seeing well, what methodologies work, how that could be useful. And then this year, when I'm looking at uh, making a summit on longevity, I went from like, okay, looking at all these disease processes to looking at longevity, because I found out a lot of my clients 
that are not in the boat of Alzheimer's dementia, like who wants to be in that boat, but some people are a legitimate concern, they want to prevent it. And there's a big demand for that. So how do you have a conversation about preventing? And that's how I got interested in longevity. Well, little did I know a few months ago what a hot topic this was. And people, all the pharma companies are in a feeding froth to find out from a pharma basis well, of course. how you could extend life extension. What can be better than that lifestyle drug? I, exactly, exactly. And, and nothing wrong, quality of life. But then the obstacle to living longer might be because you have a disease process like Alzheimer's or heart disease. Or genetic, diabetes, genetic like components. Genetics. Cancer and all sorts of things. And I had studied that a bit about genetics. Then when I started to look at the hallmarks of aging, the seminal paper that was published in 2013, I realized, oh, people are on potentially to the next step. And I realized, you know, like you asked me, like sometimes what's been my biggest challenge? When I undertook this, and I know Dale, Dale Bredesen, uh, who's, who I've interviewed, has said this too, is that we could see the possibility if we could change the trajectory of a disease process. That's the good news. And I realized that about aging. It's like aging doesn't necessarily have to be a one-way street where you degenerate over time. I mean, there are, there are physical aspects that are going to change no matter what, but it doesn't have to be a totally depressive one-way street. And so a big revolution for me, a revelation for me is that it could actually go the other way and a lot of things could improve. And as part of that, you know, kind of a corollary to this is I realized, well, a lot of disease processes, including Alzheimer's, could possibly, uh, we could not only slow the progression, which even the American Alzheimer's Association is saying now, but possibly we could stop it and maybe bring it back the other way. And I can mention in a minute some some clinical studies that I've helped uh, generate with that that led me to that conclusion. But that was a revolution to me, a revelation to me. And uh, you've heard of the Beatles, Marishi and Oprah, yeah, yeah, yeah. like right. that's, and his training was, his spiritual master said, for the West to understand meditation properly, he says, you should go to school and study physics. Yeah. So that's what he did. So. That's why he was always surrounded by Nobel Prize winners in physics and talking about this because he realized people in the West to understand something that seems kind of spiritual and mystical, if you understand the basis in physics, then that might make a lot more sense, you know, how the subjective and objective parts of work. But, you know, kind of back to the too much of a, a good thing is that um, I think it's very practical. And this is where I think the cranial sacral complements what we're doing with meditation or other techniques is that for whatever degree I have the genetics, like my mom passed away and knock on wood, I'll have that too when she was 96. She just had the genetics to live fairly long. And that was good. You know, that's just part of my family dharma or genetics. However, there's some other things like heart disease and things like that that kind of go along with it, with the family. So there's that. But as in meditation, um, there are some people, they just have that genetics and physiology. They can be deep in meditation and be very balanced. Hey, well, that's and that's, cool. yeah, people yeah, are and, easily and hypnotizable, get, right? They're, that's data of David Spiegel's work at Stanford. Well, or, or easy to transcend, we would put it that way. But they seem to be able to be able to meditate and have a full life. They can meditate 20 minutes twice a day and have a very full life, you know, and be very successful. But then underlying the genetics, some people might have a proclivity for mentally things not to be as stable or a proclivity for other diseases. And so you have to complement that practically, no problem with other things. They might need mental health professionals. They might even be, God forbid, pharmaceuticals. You know, it's appropriate where needed. And where the cranial sacral fits in is that we're looking maybe not just at, at something that is a uh, a benefit from meditation or being silent or breathing, however you want to put it. But we can also look at the deeper structural changes, which is what got me interested in Alzheimer's dementia. Absolutely. Like, what is the brain physiology? What's the exchange of fluid that over and above what's meditating can enhance that um, that practice and, and put all stack all the cards in your favor? So I kind of like joke when I talk about epigenetics. When I came up with a little bit of everyone kind of has a catchy formula. So my first book was called 
the body energy longevity prescription, but I retitled it prevent Alzheimer's in 10 minutes a day. It sounds kind of catchy, but the idea is that um, I looked at all the things that from an epigenetic point of view would stack the cards in one's favor. One might be meditation, another might be cranial sacral because it's a physical hands-on technique that's very subtle, but it helps reduce and move the toxicity from the brain. And a lot of people that have done now work on the lymphatic system, which is all another subject, um, have looked at that in terms of like, yeah, what could it be like if we could speed up that process? And then I realized, well, what other things complement that? Diet, exercise, attitude. So in my simple Social mind way, I just said, well, if we can do everything possible to stack the cards in our favor, so much the better. It probably means that the outcome of something that is not pleasant or deleterious would be less, you know, avoid the dangers not, that has not yet come. So that's how I try to mix things together to say, well, let's do everything we can to uh, look at studies. And, and besides our original study that I helped coordinate in 2008 and then follow up with some others, we looked at, okay, how can we look at that placebo effect and also account for that? So, for example, if it's important, as you well know better than I, how you design the study. But the idea is that if we could have one group that have, for example, the cranial sacral, like doing the still point that seems to help, and another group which had practitioners doing the same thing for the same amount of time, just touching, but not actually doing the cranial, then you could compare one group to the other group and say, well, what are the difference in outcome accounting for that very thing you're talking about? Yes. Just the fact they're getting human attention, they're probably going to feel better. To changing someone's belief that they can potentially heal is probably the hardest step of all. Mm -hmm. and, and seeing yeah. people allowing themselves a vision of healing. I mean, I interviewed so many people that have been through so many different traumatic events that are quite indescribable. Yeah. And they choose through their own mindset to work out ways, whatever it's going to take to get mm -hmm. better. Mm -hmm. And, right. um, and we talk a lot about this. So what is that ingredient we can give people, you know, but they don't have to go down all these really hard pathways and stuff mm -hmm, like that. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, all of these things offer people opportunities. And I mean, I've met people that are going to ayahuasca ceremonies and all sorts mm -hmm. of other things that are all exploring this question of why I'm here and what it's, what is it all about? Mm -hmm. And even those ceremonies, mm -hmm. uh, provide people with a lot of connection and right opportunity to let go of whatever it is. I kind of look at it, the world um, in Berkeley, we talked about this the other day, at least in the olden days, that every thought form in the world in one city in California. And you can kind of think that, you know, why in the world would I'm doing what I'm doing or why are you doing what you're doing? And some people seem to have a t-shirt with the, your name on it or something. It's like, they're drawn to your particular practice and it works. And I'm pretty practical because I know that not everything I'm doing will work for everyone, but I know I'm seeing encouraging results Absolutely. in a certain percentage of people controlling as variables as much as we can. It seems to help. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of your questions is what's been one of my biggest struggles is that, well, 10 or 15 years on, people don't instantly adapt to a new thing. Because underneath it, as you just identified, that even if something is beneficial, you know, even if it were 100%, which is impossible, scientifically proven, hands down, it would help, they still may have an attitude or thought pattern that says, nah, I don't think so. <laughs> and it's just human nature that that's what we do. And, and, and part of cranial sacral sometimes is helping people uh, if they're open to it, dialoguing about how there might be a resistance to change and see if there can be some so accommodation. This is where I can win. see um, you're talking about the meditation helping to open people, yeah. improve cognitive yeah. flexibility, really, isn't it? To yeah. allow yourself to ask yourself the question just for a second to be more open and curious yeah. to all of these things right i think that's the big step like we keep it really is a big step i've come to see it as the yes. fundamental hardest step now i mean i was the same i was i was down this scientific pathway of just developing drugs for alcohol addiction i did that for 20 years really really highly focused lots of nih funding and to me to shift as we talked about <laughs> 
into yeah. this idea of something a different approach a different way of looking at it, it took a really solid three years um mm -hmm. and it didn't come through meditation or anything it just came from as you said little steps happening um yeah. along the way um and i am kind of more intuitive naturally because i wrote an article in my postdoc around the art of science um mm -hmm. talking about yeah. the in intersection between art and science because even though we like to prove think uh, we're making solid hypotheses there is a lot of art right. uh right yeah a serendipity yeah. looking at an experiment going huh oh, i wonder oh that was not expected whereas other people might tip out that result but you know um now at the danger of going completely yes. off the rails in this interview uh one of the questions you ask is um what have you come to see as the most important issue facing people right now? It has nothing to do with Alzheimer's, nothing to do with cranial cycle therapy, but it's, I think it's global warming or climate change because that affects every man, woman, and child on the planet. And unless you're wealthy enough to have your own personal rocket ship, which only a couple of people can afford, apparently, you know, we're all in the same boat. And the question is, circling back to the other question is, you know, if, if there is a plethora of scientific evidence, and I, I've seen more research on this than just about anything, then indeed the climate is shifting and global warming seems to have an effect and there's cause and effect and there's always room to say there isn't. But you're bringing that to somebody and saying we need to do something before we reach a tipping point. Then how do you go to someone that's had a strong belief for millennia and in the next five years, get most of the people on the planet are enough to be on board with a change like that. That's a daunting task. Like I just got to ask what you think about that because living at mm -hmm. Berkeley, that really gave me a bigger exponential shift in my thinking mm -hmm. and then surrounding myself with a whole different tribe of people. So this gets to why we need to live with and surround ourselves with all sorts of different people in our life to, to, cause that also helps, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, and I think, I don't know if this is going on an edge to say this about you, but if you look at the way we were talking the other day about this, about there's the individual nervous system and how we discover. Yes. But when we get together with a group, meditators just call it coherence, or, you know, yeah. when you get together with a group, even if people that have different points of view, there's something that gets created bigger or larger than that one person. One plus one isn't necessarily two. There's a synergy that's created. And the birds flock together and you've seen right. the reverberations that happen. Right. That they instantly form this new um, beautiful yeah. structure out of nowhere. Right. So humans do the same thing because we've, we've been meant to live in tribes forever and we kind of stopped mm -hmm. doing that. But right. uh, what they've now shown through neuroimaging is that when a certain when you when you've got humans operating in a flow state, which you just described in meditators, but there are other other situations like that, there's a different brain region activated that you can't activate one on your own or two in a flow state on your own. There's a brain region that's activated only in this environment of a group of people in flow state. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So and that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, and I thought about this a lot too. So how do we create the conditions to create a more wide ranging flow state? But what I'm thinking of right now is Ukraine versus Russia. You look at okay. what people in Ukraine did to fight back an impossible situation. They were right. like you and I having podcasts, creating games, lawyers, doctors, they laid mm -hmm. down their computers, they turn them off and they learn how to fight. Mm -hmm. So there was a moment in their history that allowed, and it's probably coming for a long time, but they they took it up. And I feel like that might also happen. I, and I feel it's happening because you mm -hmm. and I are now having this climate change conversation and we wouldn't have had, if, I'd say, a couple of years ago necessarily. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So I feel like it's like, there's this, there's a kind of well-described algorithm and Malcolm Gladwell talks about tipping points and everything else. But if mm -hmm. there's like, there's this underground revolutionary group of people um, doing stuff, then there's this exponential swing 
to where some kind of gurus, I hate that word, but some kind of celebrities come in and start talking about it, doing stuff. And then next minute, everyone's doing it. And that was the transition from meditation to mindfulness, now into psychedelics, because you have now all of the celebrities promoting it. And and might I go on a limb here? This is a great, this is probably the best podcast I've ever done. This is so great. Um, when you look at the junction, and again, this may bring up some raise some hackles here, but when you look at the junction between science, uh, therapy, for example, and yeah. spirituality, yeah, there's a major assumption that again, I can't prove, but I know a lot of people that could give you some very interesting, including John Hagelin's very interesting aspects of this who's a physicist that you know underneath all of the progression of say fad to triggering to a small percentage and it grows into a larger context some people might say from a spiritual sense there's an underlying field that might merge into physics and again this is new and emerging science that it's like there's something that is actually inherently more life-supporting that might actually allow us to preserve the planet and live harmoniously with nature, which is a very native way of looking at it. It's a very indigenous way of saying, hey, could we look at, could we live possibly, possibly in harmony with the environment and not, that's actually uh, out of our mutual friend, Judy Cornish, that's going to be the topic of my next summit next year. I want to talk about this one. Yeah. But the one next year is called Hope for the Future. And it's going to be all about people that are doing things in a very low-key way to help change, re-coral, you know, refurbish the coral in the oceans. People that are doing things, fusion physics, which has been a fascination of my mind for decades. People that are doing things quietly that can actually help support a more positive life-supported change. And I can't give you chapter and verse scientifically why in a spiritual sense, that may be uh, something that underpins uh, whatever our belief system is spiritually, but in the broadest sense of the spiritual way that we can do something that's more life-supporting that can help support uh, a positive outcome. Well, and it could be also just um, as simple as everything's a homostatic system. Yeah. And it can, and it can fling far and back. So I, I I really I, I I think indigenous cultures, um, particularly in Australia, we're the oldest living culture, um, the mm-hmm. indigenous of Australia, and they've lived here for sixty thousand years, and of course they got annihilated two hundred years ago, but they're s- still sustaining, and those mm-hmm. practices are coming back. And yes, they did live in complete harmony to with the with the uh, environment, but they're also Mm -hmm. quite violent too and tribal in Mm -hmm, respect. mm -hmm. And so it's like, we've got to find the middle way again between that kind of simplicity of living with the environment, but also in marrying in the scientific advances that have allowed us to now have a lot of people like 8 billion people living on the planet. How do we do that in harmony? And then, how do you match that to wanting to live a long, healthy life? Because once upon a time, everyone died a lot younger, which meant that we didn't have as many yeah. people living on the planet. So it's this complex argument, isn't it, about wanting to go back to this indigenous way of living, which was also very hard. And people didn't live very long in that environment. Right. We had started as, and we are still very tribal as a people. Absolutely. But what happens not, with the advent of technology and the internet when we're fused as a global whole, and I know some people are like very honored about globalization and that can have a good context or a bad context. But the idea is going from an individual tribal people to a global world people, what would be the difference in that? And as possibly a research study in neuroscience, is there something that's supported in the neurology of the brain which actually allows us to express a higher function somehow in the neurophysiology. Is there a, is there a Absolute, level? Yeah, I agree. Of I, consciousness I, I, that, yes, yeah. definitely. Um, absolutely. Yeah. It's yeah. just that because of the uh, current evolutionary trajectory, 
Um, we did live in tribes because it supported our survival. And look how well we've done. Look how many wow. millions of years we've evolved. Look how long we're living. Look what we've invented. Like we didn't have the germ mm. th theory until very recently. We couldn't sequence the genome until very recently. And we yeah, couldn't see yeah, inside yeah. the brain. We've only started to see inside the human living brain only since the 90s. And yeah. only, only really, really miraculously in, the, I'd say, the last 15 years. That's such a small dot in evolutionary history. So what right. is yeah, absolutely. So what's the next, you're asking what's the next step in our evolutionary right. advance that allows us mm -hmm. to live in this complex but simple way to sustain the planet? And it is about how do we get out of our animal species brain, which we talked about earlier about mushrooms and plants, and because yep. most yep. of us are afraid of other people because we're only mm -hmm. used to our own tribe. So then right. this global tribe is very threatening. Right, very mm -hmm. threatening to us because we're not used to it ever right. in history. Right. So that's like that puts us straight back into wanting to go back into our individual tribes to be safe again. But we're not there anymore. We've completely transformed the planet. So that's not possible. We can't go back. So how do we help people go forward? And that's teaching them about human prefrontal cortex, teaching them that there is no subconscious. We can actually see it now for the first time in history. There's a whole new science that's evolved to show people, one, where we came from, two, why our brain does what it does, and three, how to really tap into its potential for being able to feel safe outside your own group. And, and possibly, I'm sure you're familiar with this idea, that as we've evolved over millennia, that the species as a whole is incremental. We, we talk about incremental change, but David Wood, one of our speakers from the London Futurist Society says, well, actually some change can be in a vast big jump. It's not just incremental, but it's huge jumps as well. And of course, his theory is that artificial intelligence will augment what we're doing. That's another thing that people- Oh, it already uh, has. It already has. Yeah. Absolutely. And he's saying there's even going to be greater change in the next, you know. Oh, it's already, you know. well, already been massive. It's exponential yeah. since I was using my brick phone this big with it. Yeah, to call, right, call, exactly. Call. When I was trying to say I'm picking up James from childcare um, in the 90s to my computer in my hand as I speak to you and doing this recording and being exactly. able to put it up on a platform that exactly. reaches millions of people. Like exactly. I, this pod, my podcast alone, which isn't huge, like some of them goes to 2,500 cities around the world. And that's, yeah. um, I mean, who would ever guess I could create something like that? And that's because of the technological leaps. So exactly. I think the only leap that's missing is the human leap in terms of understanding the brain that's missing from all sectors, all textbooks, and because it is new, and as you said, paradigm shifts, getting out of your tunnel, widening your tunnel. The tunnel's good, but there's nothing wrong with your tunnel because it's taught you everything you need to know right now. But yeah. we can widen yeah. the tunnel. We can extend the lens yeah. and see what other people are learning. And that includes myself. You know, I'm always knowing that I, I don't know very much. And the more you know, the less you know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And now and that's the physics thing about quantum entanglement. Um that was mm -hmm. totally trashed how many years mm -hmm. forever? Yeah. Totally trashed. People least, and yeah. pe people have been working on quantum computing and all of these things. And now Microsoft's yeah. announced a huge investment into quantum computing. Don't know if you know about that. No, I didn't but, know. But, but people yeah. have been doing that for yeah. years trying to do this. Right. But that's how it goes, doesn't it? It is. When I created the Longevity World Summit, kind of like it's a piece of what we've been talking about, I got 30 speakers like I did for the last summit, but I got a, a wide variety, a wide palette of, of different points of view. Some that are more belief-based and some that are very scientific. Some people that are very conservative to some people that are very liberal, so to speak, in terms of what they feel can occur. It's very important. So it's a palette of speaker where people can kind of look at all these different points of view and take with it what they will. The most important thing is to try and do no harm. Yes. Yes. Because some people, it's very important to be very curious and know yourself. Right. And if it doesn't feel right, it's not right. 
Right. Right. And everyone has a different nervous system in ways that people land on them. But hopefully, as we're saying in the latter part of this uh, interview, that, you know, there's something in the human condition that's allowing us to transition from maybe a tribal point of view individually to something larger and more life supporting, I would hope. I mean, that's my mission to see if we can significantly reduce the deaths from Alzheimer's worldwide in the next five years. How do you think you can prevent or reduce dementia and Alzheimer's in 10 minutes? A day. Well, it's doing the cranial sacral still point. A simple technique you can learn hands-on and Jack Ganf Jack Canfield, you may have heard of, he wrote Chicken Soup for the Soul. He says, there's three things, Mike, I like about what you do is one, it's easily learned, two, it's affordable, and three, it's scalable. And the thing I haven't, I've, I've mastered to some degree the first two, easily learned and affordable, but being scalable, spreading it globally is where I'm still working on seeing, is you simply take the head of the body and there's, there's a cranial rhythm, which has been verified indeed, it does exist, that as well as the cardiac rhythm and the respiratory, respiratory rhythm, there's also a cranial rhythm. And basically it's responsible, and my mentor, Dr. Upledger, pioneered this year, years ago, there's a pulsing of fluid called cerebrospinal fluid, or CSF, that pulses from the head, so it's called cranial, to the sacrum, the sacrum, and down the dural tube, or spine, about six to, uh, six to 12 times a minute. So there's this pumping of this cerebral spinal fluid. It's just full of neurotransmitters, right? Mm -hmm. And the idea is with Alzheimer's is that when the brain starts to degrade or get clogged up, there's actually less flow of this. Yeah. So okay. it's been fairly well documented that people with senile dementia, their flow of cerebral spinal fluid is 75% less than that of someone who's a normal, healthy adult. And University of Rochester and Neckegaard and some scientists that for the last few years now, through this two photon neural imaging, they've been able to say there's a whole lymphatic system in the brain. I know. Yeah. And within this paravascular space, there are like tiny rivers in the brain, if you will, that if these get clogged up, what starts to clog up the brain are all these amyloid plaques, amyloid tau and gamma plaques. They get clogged up like a river that's drying up. And the idea with cranial sacral therapy, which we're continuing to research and validate, is that if you can pump up the volume and increase the volume to where it's decreased, especially significantly with someone who's bringing, you know, early stage Alzheimer's or minute, and you can pump up the volume, then you can actually, as one of the scientists at University of uh, Rochester said, you can actually clear these toxins out of the brain. How do you it's pump up simple. the volume? Through this thing called the still point that you can learn in about five to 10 minutes a day. That's why I wrote the book, right. Prevent Alzheimer's in just five to 10 minutes a day. So what we found when we done the initial study in nursing homes, and we're continuing to study this, is that when you do this and other advanced techniques, you can increase this flow of cerebral spinal fluid. And the result is behaviorally, as people start to recognize their caregivers, they first of all become less agitated. That's the first thing. There's a dysregulation of all of that fight or flight, they calm down, then their brain starts to function better and they start to recover, at least in some cases, their cognitive function. Right. They're able to actually function better. So it's a simple thing to do. It doesn't work for everyone, but in a large number of cases, it seems to help. And of course, the caveat is that if you want, you want to try to catch people earlier on, because my whole theory is there's brain inflammation, which accompanies the formation of amyloid plaque and as Dale Bredesen which comes through the highly processed diet in America. And well, that's one of the vectors, or it could be trauma from experience well. of hurricanes. There's like Bredesen said, there's five different vectors, but diet can be a big piece of the puzzle. But in any case, you have inflammation. Diabetes. Under, exactly. Obesity. So you have these underlying principles, and it's like you spend decades, and all of a sudden. You know, even though the brain's tried to triage, finally it says, uncle, I give up, and it starts to lose cognitive function. So in a way, I'm saying we can go backwards. Let's start with something simple, get some results which people can grab onto, and then maybe if they have a little more mental clarity, they might entertain a radical thought like, oh, That's I could change my diet. 
or I could go for a walk for five minutes. So it's a like shame that. that it's a shame that we can't. I mean, the diet is something you could do immediately. It's a shame. This right. is the tunnel thing, isn't it? It's addiction. The food is very addictive as well. Well, and that's my point about cranial sacral is if you do something simple that works right away and you build, will be relaxed, then maybe you'll have less of a tunnel to right. say, I could try something else. You know, getting I over see, that yeah. tribal see, it's, resistance. It's this, right? it's this question we had again, isn't it? It's that mindset, yeah. belief change, and yeah. what is it that we can do to do that? And some people will just do it straight away and go, oh, yeah, it is my diet, and then they'll start taking out sugar and food, and other people can't do that at all. Well, and 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 we talk a lot in cranial about this and other therapies. Like If people feel safe, they'll more probably be, if they're defensive, they won't be, but if they can come to a point of physiological rest through any number of means we've talked about in the last hour, wow. then they may be more open to trying something new and less defensive because they're just calmer. So this takes and maybe then they the, go like, yeah, the yeah. trust relationship. Exactly. It's, it's trust. Exactly. It, we talked about attention, but it is trust as well. Right. Well, that's yeah. a great way to, finish our podcast we could talk for hours couldn't yeah. we, Michael? Um, we have such well, we overlapping could. interests and both in oh you're here. you're like one of the best people to talk to you're just you're wonderful well we and can... i found in the summit i met so many really brilliant and interesting people so if people are interested you can put up longevityworldsummit.com and they can register it's coming up in the next month and i think it'll be stimulating for a lot of people to look at a whole palette of ideas to say hey what appeals to you? Is there anything useful that might help you even change your thought processes or someone that you love? Maybe it could help. Yeah. Yes. Well, thank you for doing everything you're doing. Yeah. Well done for opening your mind, taking these not so easy journeys. Uh, thank you for trying to help and heal other people. It's a gift. Well, thank for you for having me. Yeah. Thank you. My pleasure.